We've spent the last two weeks, like I said, looking at Exodus chapter 19 through 24 as an example of the Bible being written as what we call, uh, we've been calling, because smart people call it that, not me, but other smart people, uh, ancient Hebrew meditation literature. So this was written in such a way that you're supposed to think about it, right? The meditation idea is that we're supposed to fill our minds with it and roll it over in our heads and think through. And, and because it's written that way, there's going to be some unique structural things. There's going to be patterns that are written into it. There's going to be details that are put in there that you're like, why does that matter? And there's going to be details that left out that you're like, why didn't they tell us that? And over and over, we're going to see this written the way it is written on purpose to engage your mind in it. In fact, the way we talked about it last week was the only way that you can miss what the Bible has to say to you is if you don't think about it. If you just read it and be like, well, I don't get it, and move on. If you wrestle with it, if you hypothesize in your mind, if you go through the pattern and be like, why did he say this? Why did he not say this? Lord, what's going on here? Why do I feel this way about it? Why don't I feel anything about it? When you do that, it gives you language to interpret not only your experience, but God's relationship with you and then tells you something about yourself and the life you're living. So that's why it's written the way it is written. And today we're going to follow one of those patterns that works its way all the way through the Bible and culminates in baptism. So hopefully you hang up, hang with me on this. Um, let's get the picture. We're actually going to start at the very beginning of your Bible. Okay, so if you've got a white or a blue Bible, I should just tell you what page it is. Um, but it's not going to be quite the same verse-by-verse -verse study that we usually do. So um, we're not going to have to look at the Bible as much. I know that sounds like the worst thing I've ever said from the stage, but um, you'll understand later. Genesis chapter 1. It's page... There's no page number here. That's the worst. It's page 1. There you go. I should have known that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, it says this. I got the ESV version if you're on your phone or something. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, we start literally at the first words of your Bible, and we have a picture at the starting place of where all this started, where all of humanity, where all the world started, and we have waters that are without form and void and dark and deep, apparently, and the Spirit of God hovering over those waters. Now, how many of you, when you picture that scene in your mind, picture like a quiet, like weird, dark puddle with like Spirit of God over it? How many of you, that's kind of what you get? Okay, nobody wants to raise their hand. Okay. I asked four people this week, and they all said that's what they pictured, right? Kind of this quiet scene, like nothing really happening. But when the Bible says without form and void, that means there was no form. There was no order. And if you're a mom, you know that something without order is not quiet, right? Any moms can attest to that, right? If you just let your kids do what they want, is that what you end up with? Peaceful, quiet nothingness? No, it's chaos, okay? So when you read without form, you think, oh, nothing's happening. 
but you're thinking of that from an ordered, structured world that you live in. So you're thinking of like a quiet pond out in the woods somewhere where nothing's happening. It's just peaceful. That's with all of the order that God has built into the world. When this is talking about without form, it's not talking about quiet, structured peacefulness. It's talking about chaos. So if we want to equate that back to water, because the analogy here is water, picture sticking your head in the bottom of a waterfall, right? It's loud. It's noisy. There's stuff going everywhere. None of it makes sense or has any form or structure to it. That's what's happening there. It's probably awful to look at, right? If I took a flashlight and shine it in your eyes, there's no form or order to that flashlight. It just blinds you. You can't see anything, right? But if I take that same light and order it into like a screen on a cell phone, you'll look at that thing all day, right? If I take a guitar and I just whack it and make a noise, nobody's like, oh, I just want to sing to that. No, but if I take order and form and hold it the correct way and strum the correct notes, all of a sudden now it's beautiful, right? So what's happening here is chaos. Without form is not beautiful, peaceful. It's chaos, all right? So that's a huge point. The first thing that God does then out of that chaos is he begins to create order. And actually the very first thing he does is it says, God said, let there be light, verse three, and there was light. And God saw the light was good and he called and separated the light from the darkness. So he's separating here, okay? And then verse five, God called light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then verse six, God said, let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So two times here, we have God separating, splitting. That's the idea. It's like he's making a way in the middle of something, right? And that's what he did in creation. That was the first thing he did is he split things and made order in the middle of non-order. He made order in the middle of chaos. He split the darkness. He split the waters and brought order out of chaos. And he's going to going to continue to create all the way through. I'm not going to read it all, but he's going to continue to create all the way through, through until he gets to day six, where he creates life out of chaos. Okay, so that's the picture we end up with. If you're just reading through your Bible, if you're a good little Hebrew boy or girl back in the day, memorizing this like they all would, the first picture we have is God splitting the chaos and creating life out of it. Okay, that's the picture. Now, you start reading through your Bible and you get a couple chapters later, chapter six of Genesis, and there's this man named Noah. And Noah is significant because Noah is a good guy when all the world are bad guys, okay? So you've probably heard the story. God comes down, tells Noah, you need to build an ark, Noah's ark, right? So he builds the boat and then all of a sudden the rains come and it says the fountains of the deep burst forth, Okay, now if you are a good little Hebrew boy or girl, or you're just paying attention as you read through your Bible, you were like, wait, there was chaos waters at the beginning of this Bible, and now it seems like there's chaos waters again. What is going on here? What is happening here? And Noah and his family get on the ark, and later on in your Bible, it's going to say that God saved them from the flood, just like God saved them from the destruction of humanity, 
And so the very clear picture here is the things that people were doing were dragging humanity back into the chaos waters. The thing that God was working against at the beginning when we had the chaos waters that without form void, everything going everywhere for no reason, and God split it to make possible life, now mankind is equated with, by their actions, dragging humanity back into chaos waters. And Noah and God are like, nope, we're not doing that. And God brings Noah through the chaos waters and starts over again. Okay, so how's that for imagery? We're only six chapters, let's see, uh, three pages if you're into your Bible. And we already have this chaos waters idea repeated twice. Now, keep going. And we come to the story of Exodus, which we've just been reading as a church. And God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. The people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt. God calls them out of Egypt. They wander around in the desert for a little bit. They come to the edge of the Red Sea. God says, Moses, I want you to strike the Red Sea. And when Moses does that, what happens? It splits the waters. Now, if you're paying attention to the patterns in your Bible, you're like, wait, I've heard that before. Who else split the waters? God split the waters. God split the waters and made a way for life through the chaos. And God brought Noah through the waters so that man wouldn't drag us back into chaos. And now God is splitting the waters to lead his people out of slavery. And this is a unique layer to the onion uh, because uh, Moses is now doing what the people could not do for themselves. That's actually what our last two weeks have been talking about. If you want to catch up again, like I said on the website. Um, But Moses was doing something for the people that they couldn't do for themselves. They couldn't lead themselves out of slavery. They couldn't come near to God like they should. So if you're paying attention to the imagery, the very first image we get in your Bible is God splitting the chaos waters and making room for life. Then we have Noah and God brings Noah through the chaos waters because humanity was dragging us back into chaos waters. Then we get Moses of one man leading the people through the chaos waters because they couldn't lead themselves out of that slavery. Then we come to Jonah. Okay, now some of you know the story of Jonah. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is not Israelite people, not the people of God. These are foreigners. They hated the people of God. In fact, not only were they far from God, they were opposed to God. They were awful, violent, angry people. And so when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah was like, no, I'm not doing that at all. And he gets on a boat and he starts going away from Nineveh. And what happens? If you read the book of Jonah, there's a storm come. And the scene is described, the wind and the waves. And if you're a Bible reader, you're going, Chaos waters are back. You see it again. And so what happens is the the shipmates, they all go like, what's happening here? And Jonah goes, I know what's happening. God told me to go to Nineveh. I said no, and now he's going to destroy our boat because I was disobedient. And so they said, what do we do? He said, throw me over. And they're like, really? And he's like, yeah, it's fine. And they throw Jonah into the chaos waters. I know. He gets swallowed by a fish, which some of you are like, really? Jonah got swallowed by a fish? He did. Jesus thought he got swallowed by a fish. Anyway, we'll get back to that later. So Jonah gets swallowed by a fish, and for three days and three nights, he's in the belly of the fish, gets spit up onto dry land. 
goes to Nineveh, says, hey guys, I'm here. God wants you to repent. And the whole city repents before the Lord. So follow the picture with me. God splitting the chaos waters, bringing forth life. God bringing Noah through humanity, trying to drag us back into chaos waters. God using one man, Moses, to lead the people through the chaos waters and out of slavery because they couldn't lead themselves. And now God using one man, Jonah, to go through the chaos waters for three days and three nights and bring a people who were far from and even against God to repentance. You see those pictures? Now fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene. And some of the religious leaders that day say, Jesus, we don't really believe you're from God. Give us a sign so that we can believe that you're from God. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, I'm just like Jonah. I'm going to spend three days and three nights in the grave like he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And just like Jonah brought a people who were far from and even against God back to God, that's what Jesus is doing. And so now Jesus equates death and the grave with the chaos waters that go back and remind us of Jonah. And Jonah goes back and reminds us of Moses. And Moses goes back and reminds us of Noah. And Noah goes back and reminds us of the very, very beginning. So think about it. Jesus says he was going to die like Jonah, who went through the waters, who was going to save a people who were far from God. And when Jonah did that, it reminded us of Moses, who led a people out of slavery that could not lead themselves out of slavery, which reminds us of Noah, who God saved Noah so that humanity wouldn't drag us back into the chaos waters, which remind us of the very beginning when God brought forth life as he split the chaos. So last piece. On the night before Jesus dies, he spends all night praying. And one of the most famous things that he prayed to God on the night before he died on the cross was this. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That's a prayer of surrender. You see that? Like we, we so want to have control. We have this tight-fisted posture towards our lives. Like we need to control it. We need to do what we want to do. We want to get what we want. We want to have our way. And, and God is breaking us from that. And Jesus, as our example, prays this prayer of surrender. Not mine, Lord, but your will be done. So as Jesus is about to spend three days in the grave, just like Jonah spent three days in the fish, he prays this prayer of surrender. And if you put all the imagery and the stories back together, it would sound something like this. Father, I surrender to your plan of bringing me through the chaos waters of death and into life so that a people who are far from you, who are slaves to corruption, might be freed from their temptation to drag their lives back into chaos waters and give them life. I mean, that's an incredible picture, right? So we're going to do this this morning. It's going to be a little skit. Skit's terrible. Skit is demeaning and not very nice to what we're going to do here. A ceremony. How about that? We're going to do a ceremony. And the ceremony is going to be full of symbolism, okay? 
We are going to participate in this ceremony, and it's going to be deep and rich with meaning. And this person who you're going to watch get in the tub is going to pray a prayer of surrender before they get dunked into the chaos waters, right? <laughs> like, that's what's going to happen. And I'm going to be standing there as a symbol of the person who lifts them out of the chaos waters because they could not lift themselves out of the chaos waters, and they're going to be lifted out of death into new life, just like God made, split the chaos waters and brought forth the, the conditions that would support life. And all of this is going to remind us who have been baptized, who have made this commitment before, man, Jesus did an amazing thing, right? Yeah, you could clap for that. So this morning, God is going to bring life from the chaos, just like he's been doing from the very first words of your Bible. And these people are going to surrender to it, and they're going to participate with the Spirit of God in their salvation, just like Jesus did when he surrendered to the Father's will. And they're going to do this as a signal that this journey has started, right? This, this journey of God splitting the chaos, bringing forth life, surrendering, bringing them out of slavery, bringing one man through the chaos waters to people who are far from God. All of that is tied up in this ceremony, this ritual, this ordinance that we call baptism. And we're going to celebrate with the people that take that step. Amen? Amen. Worship team, you can come on back up, and I'll explain what's going to go on here. So what's going to happen is, worship team's going to keep playing songs until all the people are done getting baptized. And some of you already know you're going to get baptized, and some of you have the Spirit of God, like, convicting your heart, like, I need to do this. I need to take that step. I need to publicly make that declaration. And if that's you, we're going to head around the corner up here, over to the back corner. There's people there who are going to be so excited to see you. They're going to give you a hug. They're going to give you a t-shirt. They're going to give you towels, and they're going to get you ready for making this public declaration. So, I think we got a couple people that were planning on getting baptized already that are headed back there. The rest of you, this is completely open, right? We do this publicly for a couple different reasons. One, the Bible commands us to, but two, there are people who did not plan on that until the Spirit of God worked in their heart. And if you're like, Jared, don't I have to take a class or know some more? Like, we don't see that in the scriptures. We see people preaching the gospel, other people going, what do I do to be saved? And they say, repent and get baptized. When? Now! Let's do it. And we see examples of that in the Bible. So that's why we do it on a Sunday morning. Not only so that we can all celebrate together with the people that are taking that step, but so that some of you who are like, what do I need to do to have my life break through the chaos waters? Repent, surrender, and get baptized. And that's what we're planning on doing this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray.